Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Riot Girar, Advocacy Director with the group Democracy for the Arab World Now, who takes a critical look at the Biden administration's effort to broker an agreement to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Laura Dehan, Director of the group Environment California, who assesses her state's new law requiring large companies to release their greenhouse gas emission totals and a new lawsuit against fossil fuel companies for their damage to the environment. And Laura Carlson, coordinator of Global Solidarity and Learning with Just Associates, who talks about Mexico's two women presidential candidates, one of whom will make history by becoming the nation's first female head of state. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Nine years after 43 students from a rural teacher's college in Mexico disappeared, their parents continue to demand answers from the government and military. In July, a panel of independent investigators presented evidence in its sixth and last report about the missing students. The report concluded that Mexican security forces at the local, state, and federal levels, quote, all collaborated to make the students disappear, unquote. When questions were asked, the Mexican government intentionally falsified information and withheld leads. Among the evidence were drone photos and video that may have shown Mexican Marines in the same area where the students had been reportedly killed. Investigators found that state security forces had placed the students under surveillance and stigmatized the group that were later murdered as insurgents. The students were on their way to Mexico City to commemorate 46 years since the Talate Loco massacre on October 2, 1968, where hundreds of university students were killed by Mexican armed forces. The 2014 atrocity has taken on significance beyond the 43 students in a country where more than 110,000 people are missing. Shortly after U.S.-trained troops in Niger staged a coup to topple the democratically elected government there, the U.S. military confined hundreds of its troops to a large American drone base, one of the largest such bases in West Africa. According to The Intercept, the U.S. has spent $250 million on Air Base 201 that was built in 2016 to be a platform for counterterrorism operations in West Africa. On Capitol Hill, the chief of U.S. Africa Command, General Michael Langley, intentionally downplayed the base and similar military hubs in testimony before the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. The U.S. military currently has 20 outposts and active security operations with sizable new bases in development in Somalia and Ghana. During his testimony, Langley failed to mention a sizable drone base in Tunisia used to wage shadow American wars in Niger and Somalia. 
In Washington, progressives and human rights groups are rounding up support for New York Representative Jamal Bowman's proposed cost-of-war amendment to the defense spending bill. The legislation would force increased transparency on the cost of America's presence overseas and get a true picture of the U.S. military's footprint in volatile regions around the world. On Election Day, November 7th, voters in Maine have an opportunity to promote public power. Ballot Question 3 would revoke the monopoly status of two of the state's unpopular investor-owned electric companies, Central Maine Power and Versant Power. Advocates for converting the electrical power system to a nonprofit entity that would be called Pine Tree Power say it would lower costs over the long run. Yet... The measure is opposed by Maine's Democratic governor, Janet Mills, utility worker unions, and utility-funded campaign groups. The American Prospect reports there are diverse coalitions on both sides of the issue. Supporters of Question 3 include many Democrats and a handful of right-wingers who are fed up with higher rates and constant power outages. Utility-funded ads claim the plan to take over the power distribution system would cost $13.5 billion, although consumer advocates say the actual projected costs are closer to $7 billion. Maine has nine small consumer-owned electric utilities, with most offering lower rates than the state's two largest power companies. While Pine Tree Power would not own generation facilities, supporters say it could help in the transition to a greener electric grid by offering more cooperation with solar energy providers who have been snubbed by central main power. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Meeting on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly in New York City on September 20th, U.S. President Joe Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met to discuss Washington's ongoing effort to broker an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia to establish formal diplomatic relations. The discussion came as Israel continues to launch violent attacks on Palestinians in the occupied territories and Netanyahu's extremist right-wing government is gutting the nation's judicial branch that millions of Israelis say is dismantling their democracy. The effort to normalize relations between Israel and the Saudis follows the Trump administration's 2020 Abraham Accords that establish relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco. Biden's negotiating partner in the deal is Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who the president once pledged to make a pariah after he was found to have authorized the grisly 2018 murder of Saudi journalist and dissident Jamal Khashoggi. In exchange for signing a normalization agreement, Prince bin Salman, whose regime has committed gross and systemic human rights abuses, is demanding that the U.S. sign a mutual defense treaty and assist the kingdom to build a civilian nuclear program. Your reporter spoke with Raya Jarrar. 
advocacy director with the group Democracy for the Arab World Now or Dawn that was founded by Jamal Khashoggi. Here he takes a critical look at the Biden initiative to normalize relations between the Saudis and Israel that he and other critics regard as an endorsement of oppression. Normalizing oppression and apartheid is not a good idea. Normalizing the United States government with uh, leaders like Mohammed bin Salman is not a good idea. It is not an ethical idea. And uh, honestly, it's not in our interest as a country to continue to support uh, these kind of governments around the region. Uh, Continuing to support the Netanyahu government in Israel is not just a bad idea. It actually crosses the line to contradict our own laws in the United States. We're actually not supposed to be giving our money and weapons to governments that are committing serious violations of human rights or committing war crimes and crimes against humanity, like what the Israeli government commits every day. So that's why we don't think that the normalization uh, effort between Mohammed bin Salman and Netanyahu is something that the United States should prioritize or bankroll. Why, why would we be spending our own money and political capital in making sure that these dictators and apartheid regimes are hanging out together Uh, You know, using our tax dollars, it's zero in our interest to do this. Actually, our interest is the other way around. Our interest is to stop funding them all together. As we've read, Raed, the U.S. is offering a security pact with the Saudi monarchy, as well as uh, help to uh, develop the Saudis' uh, civilian nuclear program. What, if anything, are the Saudis uh, willing to uh, concede in terms of human rights or other issues as part of this pact. And uh, a question beyond that is, what's being sacrificed in terms of Palestinian human rights and concern for that around the world with this pact? I think um, these are very good questions to ask the Biden administration. We have been asking them the same questions, honestly. Um, The human rights uh, and foreign policy communities in Washington, D.C., have asked this administration the same question over and over. And the question is, why are you making all of these concessions? Why did President Biden fly all the way to the Middle East and fist bump Mohammed bin Salman? What did we get in return? Why Why did he meet with Mohammed bin Salman at a time that most of the human rights organizations and vocal voices here in D.C. and internationally were asking him to follow through on his promise to make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah instead of making him an ally, uh, we don't know. Uh, and uh, the administration sometimes tells us that we are naive and uh, we are utopians and we don't know how the real world works. I mean, honestly, I think pragmatist foreign policy that is uh, devoid of ethical and moral parameters is not okay, even if it was yielding results. But with this administration, it's neither. It's the worst of both worlds. It's an immoral, unethical foreign policy. It's not guided by ethics. It's not guided by human rights. It's not guided by a vision. But it's also not yielding results. What's the level of opposition to this uh, effort to normalize relations between the Saudis and Israel in Congress? And who are the allies that you have at dawn among human rights groups who are also opposed to this uh, this effort for normalization? 
There is a broad coalition of groups uh, who is opposing uh, this kind of normalization. And we come from a place where we don't think supporting dictators and apartheid regimes is a good idea. We come from a place we think where we think this normalization is happening at the expense of the Palestinian people, of Palestinian rights, of the future of Palestine. Uh, so there is a broad coalition of, of non-profit uh, organizations working on this. But also there are um, many members of Congress who are concerned about this. They are not okay with continuing the blank check policies to Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so I think uh, there uh, will be definitely pushback from Congress to any um, attempt by this administration to sign a security pact or give more uh, security guarantees and concessions to uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia. That was Riyad Jarrar. Advocacy Director with the group Democracy for the Arab World Now, or DAWN. Find more analysis and commentary on the effort to normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. California is the fifth biggest economy in the world, so what happens there has an outsized impact on the planet. The state is also one of the biggest oil producers in the U.S. California's legislature recently passed a landmark bill that requires large companies that operate in the state to release their greenhouse gas emission totals, as well as those that come from activities like employee business travel, the most sweeping mandate of its kind in the nation. And on September 15th, California Governor Gavin Newsom filed a lawsuit against the world's five biggest oil companies for more than 50 years of deception, cover-up, and damage that have cost California taxpayers billions of dollars in health and environmental impacts. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Laura DeHaan, state director of the group Environment California. Here she talks about these two major climate initiatives and their potential impact on the state and beyond. Just over a week ago, California became the biggest, by far, state or entity to sue oil companies for their role in creating climate change, in creating the destruction that we're seeing all around us. And they, they basically have taken a lot of the different lawsuits that have already been filed from young people in Montana, like the city of Santa Clara filed a lawsuit. Other states have also filed similar lawsuits, like the, the state of Rhode Island did as well. Um, but they've taken all of the different types of lawsuits that have been filed against the oil companies for their role in contributing to the climate crisis. And they've kind of rolled them into one. Um, so they're saying that they're responsible for creating a public nuisance, um, that they engaged in untrue or misleading advertising, misleading environmental marketing, fraudulent business practices, and violating policies around their duty to warn consumers about the, the risks associated with their products. All of the different types of lawsuits were kind of all rolled into one, and they've taken on the five biggest oil companies, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips, as well as the American Petroleum Institute. The state is proposing that there be an abatement fund created that would basically be equivalent to the cost that these oil companies have incurred for the state of California. For all the past costs, we're talking about cleaning up the oil wells, right, that we have in the state or dealing with the wildfire and the 
sea level rise that we're already seeing and already having to invest money in, putting up seawalls and huge, huge uh, costs from wildfire mitigation and addressing that, but also um, would be used for setting ourselves up to be resilient in the face of climate change, but also to stave off the worst impacts. There's a lot that our state could be doing right now. We're already doing as much as a lot, we're already trying to do a lot, but we could be doing a lot more to accelerate away from dependence on fossil fuels. And so the idea of the abatement fund, as it's written in the lawsuit, is proposing to create resources, create a fund that could be used to help transition to 100% clean energy as fast as we can, to invest in clean transportation so we stop having to buy gasoline. We can instead rely on alternative transportation sources or clean vehicles much faster. Laura DeHaan, in addition to this lawsuit, California just passed a very important bill that will require large emitters of greenhouse gases to actually release the data on those emissions. Can you explain what's involved? What it does is it requires that big companies disclose their global warming pollution, and it's using the internationally recognized systems for doing that. And so it's a really strong policy. The really exciting thing is that last week at Climate Week in New York, Governor Newsom announced that he plans to sign that bill into law. There's been a lot of attention on that because these companies that operate in California are operating all around the country and all around the world. And so requiring this level of disclosure has you know, really big impacts um, beyond our state borders, right? And so that will have you know, national and international implications. And then there's one bill that's super controversial where actually uh, we just released a new resource that shows where all of California's oil wells are around the state. As we discussed, we were a major oil producer, but that oil industry is in decline right now. And oil companies have too often, they've not taken the responsibility of cleaning up the oil wells when they've kind of come to the end of their life. And so now we've got over 5,000 oil wells that have just been orphaned. They aren't owned by any company and it's kind of fallen to the state to take the responsibility of cleaning them up. These are oil wells that are leaking huge quantities of methane and there's almost 70,000 oil wells that are at risk of becoming orphaned. They're idle, so they're no longer getting used. Um, so we just put out a, a resource, a map that shows where these are. Many of them are quite close to rivers and also to drinking water supplies. Um, so it's a really a big health concern as well as an environmental concern. There's a bill that's sitting on the governor's desk that would just require that anytime these idle wells are sold and that the company buying them has adequate financial protection so that if they go bankrupt, someone's going to pay to clean up that mess. It's not going to fall to, to the taxpayer. That was Laura DeHaan. State Director of the Group Environment California. Learn more about California's new greenhouse gas emission law and the state's lawsuit against fossil fuel companies by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Mexico appears to be on track to elect its first woman president in next year's national election 
after its two leading political parties each nominated female candidates. The former mayor of Mexico City and frontrunner Claudia Scheinbaum, a physicist with a doctorate in environmental engineering, is the candidate of the ruling Progressive Morena Party. Scheinbaum, who is Jewish, will face off in the June 2nd election against Xochitl Galvez, candidate of the center-right Broad Front for Mexico coalition, who is a sitting senator with indigenous roots. Although Mexican women didn't win full voting rights until 1953, the nation has since made progress, increasing the representation of women in government and the judiciary. Mexico's Supreme Court recently decriminalized abortion nationwide. Although the election of a woman president won't reverse Mexico's long history of macho culture and gender discrimination, it will serve as a powerful symbol of the capacity for future change. Your reporter spoke with Laura Carlson, coordinator of Global Solidarity and Learning, with the group Just Associates in Mexico City. Here she discusses the background and positions of both top candidates and the possibility that if Claudia Scheinbaum wins, she could depart from the policies of her mentor, Mexico's popular outgoing president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's favored aggressive development of fossil fuels and a leading role for the military. It is a turning point for Mexico. Mexico is a really macho country. It's taken decades of hard work by feminists and women's organizations to get to this point, mainly uh, by working on laws of parity, which is to say equal representation within government. And so they first had to work to get these laws passed. Then they had to work to close the loopholes because the parties were were go, going around them. And every time they go around them, they had to have further legislation to kind of close up those loopholes. So it's been a lot of resistance to this. And then when this government came in, there was a commitment. And so for the first time, and in a huge leap forward, after the kind of very gradual advances of the past, we had both in the cabinet and in Congress, almost an equal number of women as men. It made history in Latin America, one of the few countries in the world. It's a step forward, but it's certainly not the revolution, you know. First of all, you have the fact that uh, women don't necessarily represent women's rights. There are a number of conservative women candidates, and I would count Social Galvez among them, although she's more pro-women than the parties that are backing her, who don't have a strong commitment to a feminist or a women's agenda. So there's a lot of ways in which just a numerical value of representation of women is not nearly enough. When we get to the candidates themselves, so what we see is that they're similar in some outward characteristics. Claudia Scheinbaum is 61 years old, Sotil Galvez is 60. They have both been in politics for a long time, although there's some effort to portray Sotil Galvez as an outsider. She was drafted by the conservative National Action Party to serve uh, in the government of Vicente Fox in the year 2000 as a representative on the Indigenous Commission, which in some ways was a way to defuse the radical demands of the Zapatista insurrection that was, of course, in 1994 and still going strong. She is an indigenous person herself from the state of Hidalgo and Otomi. She has been with the National Action Party. She's now an independent, but she's backed by 
this strange, but now we're used to it, coalition of the National Action Party, a right-wing party, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which is the authoritarian party that ruled Mexico for 71 years, and the Party of the Democratic Revolution, which originally was the party of the left until Morena split off and formed, and the PRD, as it's called by its initials here, decided to join the right wing as an opposition group. What brings them together is to get rid of Morena and especially of López Obrador, but of course he's on his way out because Mexico doesn't allow for re-election. Claudia has a much more left-wing background, and including much more left-wing than López Obrador because she comes out of social movements. He, of course, came out of the PRI as an opposition candidate and part of the pro-democracy forces. She comes out of student movements. And then she began to get involved in elections. She has a scientist background as a physicist and an environmental engineer. So she she's a very different kind of a candidate, but she's also quite loyal to the current president. I'm wondering where, if on any policy, is Claudia Scheinbaum different from the current president, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, when it comes to issues like the military and fossil fuels? given her background as an environmental scientist? That's a really good question, Scott, because I think the answer would be that we don't really know in some ways. For now, um, she's not going to do anything that distances her or portrays any kind of differences with the current president. She is very loyal in public. I think that there will be differences. Uh, I think that in general, we will see a continuation of the current policies, especially the policies that are hallmarks of what Lopez Obrador calls the fourth transformation. And he's going to make us sure of that as far as he can in the next a little over year of his presidency, because he's very, very concerned about leaving an historical legacy. So he's very concerned that some of his pet projects be carried out, and he's trying to lock them in before he leaves office. Some of those are big infrastructure projects. One of them, like the refineries and all the investment in the oil company, touches on the point that you mentioned, which is this market reliance on fossil fuels as a driver for national development, with some of that being uh, more control being taken over by the state, but also a huge investment at a time when we should be phasing out fossil fuels. Now, Claudia Scheinbaum comes from an environmental background. She was the secretary of the environment under Lopez Obrador when he was mayor of Mexico City. And so she has never crossed him on this particular strategy. But I would expect to see some moving away from reliance on Pemex and oil and gas production in the next presidency. That was Laura Carlson coordinator of Global Solidarity and Learning with Just Associates. Find more news and commentary on Mexico's two leading women presidential candidates by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WAAA in Epson, New Hampshire, WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.